Good morning, this is The Burner. I am James Butler and it is Thursday, the 2nd of April and we are still in lockdown. Today's show starts with a couple of numbers. 950,000 people have signed up for Universal Credit in the past two weeks. Universal Credit, of course, is the portal and programme which rolls together employment benefits with its infamously useless portal and its paltry payments and its critical five-week wait. And yesterday's figures show 563 people died from COVID-19 in the UK, including one young boy. Those should give some evidence of the scale of the crisis which is now upon us, both medical and economic on the latter. Of course, I think the true scale is yet to feed through into politics, but it will do. Those numbers seeking employment benefits would amount to roughly 2.8% of the British workforce, a huge throwing off of labour, but I suspect there is more to come. And it's worth noting that in any other time, were 563 British citizens to die in one day, we would be calling it a national tragedy, of the kind noted in Parliament and after which inquiries and hearings are held. Instead, it was just Wednesday. We cannot and we must not lose sight of the human scale of this crisis or be lulled by the sense that it is happening as yet somewhere still slightly removed from our lives. Think of the families and friends of that number and think also of the medics, doctors, nurses, porters and cleaning staff now working away in the hospitals to which they are taken. From the beginning of this show, I've said that I expect and I hope we all together will demand an inquiry at the end of this. And I feel strange about that demand because I also know as anyone who's been involved in inquiries, high level or low level, uh, that they're also a way of kicking things into the long grass, drawing their political poison. Sometimes it seems shrugging off responsibility. It's not always true, but it's so often the case. Think of the ongoing inquiry into undercover policing and spy cops abuse of women, uh, which is a slow running uh, and often all too underreported scandal. Or think of the way that the Grenfell inquiry seems to be proceeding. There's a real problem here. And that's the way the British civil society is set up so that responsibility and therefore culpability is diffused. So you ask, who made this decision? Who didn't act? Who's to blame? Well, responsibility vanishes under a blanket of little decisions made here and made there. Maybe there are lessons to be learned, but no one ends up responsible. Two thoughts on this. One is that it's not a new problem. One tradition of left thinking, call it Gramscian, has always recognised that systems of power in Western democracies especially are set up this way. It makes them difficult and intractable to radical change. And that maze of power, which, you know, you have to say came into being quite accidentally, in this case makes them quite hard to call to account. But that's perhaps one reason to keep our eyes trained right at the very top and refuse any attempt at blame shifting or an attempt to hide behind claims that really there's no politics involved. It's all just science. My second thought is that, yes, we do run things through systems. So this is a time to think about those systems. The obvious one for the left is capitalism, what it values, what it doesn't, how it fails us. But perhaps you can drill down deeper when it comes to health. You might look, for instance, at so-called new public management, the theory that's basically used to run the NHS and strip it of spare capacity and resilience, which it treats as waste and hands off to the private sector. These days are dark. But I hope that they'll also prove an obituary for that style of thinking, which now should stand utterly discredited. There is a claim that we should feel sorry for our leaders, that they're in a crisis that no one could have predicted or prepared for. I don't believe that to be true. 
Because it's not just the failure to see it coming, it's the failure to react when there was time to react, react when there was time to prepare, to recognise what was going on and respond. And yes, I'm talking about January and February, but even March as well, half of which they spent still treating it as if it were a bad batch of flu. Now look, when people stand for office, they are in part standing because they say that they have the extraordinary ability and capacity not to see events before they occur. And that would be impossible, something that's the preserve of hucksters and frauds like Dominic Cummings. But they can respond to them judiciously and seriously and honestly. It is plain, I think, and has never been so plain, that Johnson and his cabinet are simply not up to this job. And this is a job where not being up to scratch means that people die. So no, I don't feel sorry for them. Even some of the press is beginning to wake up to that fact. And in the middle of the crisis, no government minister can give a straight and honest answer around testing. As I said yesterday, I believe that one reason uh, is that to do so would acknowledge their late and only partial departure from their old herd immunity or mitigation strategy. But it's both shameful and scandalous that in the NHS, apparently only 2,000 tests have so far been done for its workers. And that's with one in four medical staff off sick or self-isolating for a total workforce of half a million people. For shame. So we can see what an inquiry might look like eventually. And those of us who have spent time looking at minutes from the government's advisory groups over the past week or who have, to be honest, read inquiry documents before, the questions should be obvious. They're the same questions that, on one level, inquiries always ask. Who knew what when? Who could have known what or should have known what when? Why did they act or fail to act when they did? And perhaps acutely important here, when did they place political advantage over honesty with the public? There will be specific areas as well, I think. The first is on testing, how Britain failed so badly to acquire the tests it needed in time, and what lay behind that, whether it was still rooted in the entirely wrong initial strategy. And remember, I've said this before on this show, the Deputy Chief Medical Officer saying just recently that advanced nations don't need to test. Why? The same question will be asked about protective equipment, though that will stretch back further as well. Uh, Both of those questions, in fact, might touch on how successive governments have closed our testing services and rejected purchases of of protective gear, and, and how that lack of preparedness made poor decisions worse. It might ask about ventilator purchases, and the obvious and flagrant lie about missing out on them through a missed email, why it took so long for the government to take the need for ventilators seriously at all and do something to get them. But above all, why it stuck so long to its existing existing strategy, even as it became clear that this is a dangerous and different kind of pathogen. And as the disaster mounted in Italy and Spain, we must have answers and we will have answers. As Michael Gove spends his time socially distancing himself from the truth at the press conference lectern these days, he should remember that it's not the error that gets you. It's the lie and the cover up. What shall I cry? We demand a committee, a representative committee, a committee of investigation. Resign. 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 Okay, just a quick one. Wolfgang Munkau, thinking of the economic crisis now brewing, says, quote, It seems extremely implausible to us that life will return to the status quo ante, which is the underlying presumption of virtually all the forecasts right now. Uh, And I think that's completely right. I want to point to a piece by Jacques Attali, who was a close advisor to François Mitterrand back in the 80s. And you might call Attali a kind of soft left thinker, uh, I guess. And he has a piece uh, on his website called Connaître-t-il, What Will Be Born? Uh, 
it's in French, but if you don't read French, Google Translate does a decent job. And he says he expects a real collapse of authority, maybe even at some point uh, soon authoritarian regression. But eventually, he says that political power will belong to those who can show the most empathy for others. The dominant economic sectors will also be those of empathy, health, hospitality, food, education, ecology. So it's a vision there of quite profound possible economic change arising out of the crisis. And I'll link that piece in the notes to the show. Now, the United States. The disaster, as we know, is growing there. And I noted the other day a BuzzFeed headline saying even the US is doing more testing uh, than us here in the UK. Even the US, as if it were a standard example of a failed state. And just the other day, I noticed the California governor declaring his state to be a nation state. So when he was talking about the state's response to the crisis. And of course, above it all, there is Trump. So I asked Sarah Jaffe, who is a friend of the show and a brilliant uh, labour specialist and journalist, to tell us just a bit about what's been going on over there. Hello from the People's Republic of West Philadelphia, where I have been on lockdown for a little over two weeks. It is, well, the US is unsurprisingly kind of a mess right now. We have, in addition to Donald Trump as president, we have a patchwork, messy healthcare system that at the best of times doesn't have the capacity to take care of every single person who might get sick of this disease. And this is certainly not the best of times. So the US government has been also all over the place, right? Donald Trump has changed his mind about three different times about what he thinks is going on. The only thing that's consistent in his response to the disease is that he is racist. And so he continues to insist on calling the coronavirus the Chinese virus. What's happened is this sort of, you know, waving it off and saying, oh, it'll be fine, nothing's happening, and then taking it seriously and saying, you know, we should lock down and then getting distracted and bored and, you know, the markets were going down. So saying, oh, we need to reopen. We want to have people off of lockdown by Easter and saying because he wanted to see packed churches on Easter, which like if you know the demographics of who goes to church, that is a horrifying idea. And then now he seems to be off that one and realizing once again that he can't actually do that. So we're on ordered lockdown from Trump for another month. So that means all of April. And well, again, the the relief bill supposedly, that passed Congress is a mishmash of a lot of things, mostly, again, massive handouts to banks and big corporations, a little bit of funding in there for normal people, which is to say like the one-time $1,200 checks that we're all supposed to be getting, although we do not know exactly when we're going to get those because it will depend on where and how you filed your tax returns last year. They've boosted temporarily what unemployment payments will be. But of course, most of your listeners will have heard of the massive spike in unemployment claims, three point something million. So that's because, of course, unlike what Rishi Sunak did, the Trump plan does not require employers to hold on to their employees. So they are predictably laying people off. So we're expecting that number to go up even more. We're expecting contractions in this quarter of something like 20 to 30% of the economy. It's going to be a mess here, and that's just the workforce. The question of healthcare provision is much scarier. I've been talking to nurses from around the country in private hospitals, in the publicly owned hospitals of the Veterans Administration, and... The story everywhere is not enough personal protective equipment, masks being sort of locked up and nurses having to go find managers to get permission to use them. 
And what's been good about that is that it has resulted in a lot of pushback from nurses. And here in the U.S., one of the biggest and most militant labor unions is National Nurses United, which is the big national nurses union. And so nurses have been having protests at shift change in a lot of places from coast to coast, demanding better protective equipment, better staffing levels, all the sorts of things that they've been fighting for for quite a long time. Um, We're also seeing exciting things in terms of wildcat strikes at everything from Amazon warehouses to um, Instacart and um, Whole Foods, the grocery store, pizza delivery drivers on strike. I'm working on talking to actually, I should not say I have talked to them yet, but workers at GE plants who are holding organized protests to demand that they be employed to build ventilators. So this is, again, these are are factories that are being shuttered or idled that are now hopefully maybe um, under demand of the workers to be used to do something better. We've already seen this from Ford um, and a couple of other companies that are saying that they want to produce ventilators, to produce masks, to produce other forms of protective equipment. There's a push to get Trump to invoke the Defense Production Act, which would allow him to essentially um, requisition companies to do things that are necessary for the quote-unquote national defense. And while I hate calling it the national defense, because that just brings us back to the war, and as your contributor James Meadway pointed out, we actually want the opposite of a war for many reasons right now. That said, getting the state to push for production of necessary life-sustaining goods as opposed to things that are killing us slowly or quickly in the case of some of the bombs that some of these places make would be a big move. And then the question of the election that we're theoretically still having, that is a very, very interesting question, right? So Joe Biden is ahead. He certainly does not have all of the delegates he would need to explain the complicated U.S. primary process would take approximately three hours. But a bunch of states have pushed their primaries back to June now. Other people are pushing for a vote by mail. We have state by state different election procedures. So that's one of the many things that is a mess right now. It's also state by state different in terms of what kind of lockdown people are on. In terms of the election, Bernie Sanders is theoretically still running. He is theoretically still running to win. Joe Biden had disappeared for like a week. He's surfaced again recently, just in time to tell us all that Medicare for all or any kind of universal health care would not actually help us deal with this crisis, a line that is so completely false that we should all be laughing right now. So... What will happen, I cannot tell you because I don't imagine that that many people are paying that much attention to elections right now. The question of Medicare for all obviously is a big one. Poll that was just out this morning, as I'm talking to you, it is Wednesday evening. This poll showed that Medicare for all had gotten more popular in the last couple of weeks by something like 9% among all different demographics. So that's among Democrats, among Republicans, among independents. On all levels, it had gone up by about the same. Now, that, of course, still means that Republicans don't like the idea, but they dislike it a little bit less than they did before. And among Democrats, you would think this would be the moment. Um, I think that will become even more clear over the next few weeks and months as more parts of the country are hit by this disease, as we see it doing things like decimating rural healthcare capacity in a lot of 
states, a lot of parts of states in this country, when manufacturing shut down, so did kind of everything else in those places. And the people, this is not dissimilar to certain parts of the UK, the people who are still living in those places are the people who used to work in those factories, used to work in those mines, who, particularly when we're talking about mines, already have diminished lung capacity, are at serious risk of you know, real complications from the coronavirus. And there aren't a lot of hospitals in those places. There aren't a lot of healthcare providers in those places. So again, as we see the disease really reaching into places where it hasn't yet, right? New York City is still the epicenter of it in the U.S. and has more deaths already than most countries have had. We will see reactions politically all over the place. So I don't know at all what that's going to look like. Some of it is going to depend on... I guess, whether the, the disaster nationalists, as, as uh, Richard Seymour would call them, start to come up with a coherent response to this. While I can't imagine Joe Biden coming up with a good argument for what he would do in this crisis that will somehow be better than giving everybody health care, I don't expect the sort of Democratic Party establishment to suddenly realize that they should rally behind Bernie Sanders. So that is what I have for you today. I wish you all well. And James, I really want, when this is all over, a Navarra Media t-shirt with stay safe, wash your hands, don't be a prick on it. I think it's the new keep calm, carry on. And my thanks to Sarah for that. We'll catch up in greater detail, I think, next week. And maybe we'll get those t-shirts made. Uh, But today, headlines have some actual criticism of the government over the testing crisis. The Low Pay Commission warns the government that its proposed raise to the minimum wage, so-called national living wage, might not meet its promise to raise it so. So the economic hit we've been through couldn't, to me, underline the need for such an increase uh, much, much more. But they warn that the spending on the response to the crisis might hit their ability to meet that promise. The COP26 talks on climate change due to be held in Glasgow this year are to be delayed for a year. But that shouldn't be a moment for inaction. As far as I'm concerned, we should use the scale of this crisis to outline just what kind of response, at what scale, we need to deal with climate change. The Chambers of Commerce here in Britain warn that more than six in ten British businesses have no more than three months of cash left. The Speaker of the House of Commons also makes an unprecedented intervention to demand that if Parliament is unable to meet after Easter, that some means of digital meeting must be put in place so that the government can be scrutinised properly. And finally, voting for the Labour leadership uh, contest closes at noon today. If you have a vote, don't forget to go use it. All right, tomorrow. What do we do in a state of emergency I'll look across Europe and try to see what's really been going on. As ever, get in touch on james at navaramedia.com and I'll try to get back to you where I can, though it may take a few days. I do read everything that you're sending. Please, please, please keep them coming. As for now, stay safe, stay home, wash your hands and don't be a prick. That's it. This is The Burner. I am James Butler and I'll see you tomorrow. Bye-bye. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.